Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris, an episode number 81. Glad to have you with me. If you enjoyed this episode and have been helped even by previous episodes, I want to invite you to go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. Patreon is the platform that I use to gather support for the work that I do on YouTube, as well as the Better Bible Reading podcast and the website, betterbiblereading.com. And as you go to the Patreon page for Better Bible Reading, you can choose from one of three different support tiers. And when you do, you'll gain exclusive content as my way of saying thank you for your support. It is my generous supporters that make this show and others like it available to you, the viewers. So thank you so much for your support. Again, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. Well, we're continuing our study in the gospel according to the Old Testament, and we've gained some pretty good traction over the last four sessions of this study. We make it now to the second to last one in this series, and we've been looking at the way that Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament themes, foreshadowings, types, And we began all the way back in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And we saw how even after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and were banished from the Garden of Eden and sin entered into the world and all of the things that came along with that, God made a promise that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. We looked to see how Jesus fulfilled that. And then we started tracing out the anticipations of of what that would actually look like and how when Jesus comes in the New Testament, it's not a surprise. It's not a plot twist. It's, in fact, a fulfillment of all of the anticipations in the Old Testament. And probably the two most primary ones are the fact that Jesus is a greater prophet and a greater priest. But now we get to the third element of that fulfillment of the Old Testament offices. We saw Jesus as a prophet, we saw him as a priest, and now today we're going to be looking at how Jesus is a greater king. So there's a few different uh, places that we can go to in the Bible to see this explicitly, Uh, but to really kind of situate this conversation, um, I want us to look primarily in Psalm 22, and we'll go to the Old Testament as it branches out from that. Uh, but after Moses, so we, you know, we spent a lot of time on Moses as Jesus being the greater Moses, the fulfillment of uh, the ministries that Moses had in the Old Testament. But after Moses, the most significant figure in the Old Testament is that of King David. Of course, David was uh, mentioned as kind of the standard of king. So remember when we looked at the idea of, of the Old Testament prophets, Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, is identified as the token prophet, as the greatest prophet of all. He's the standard. Uh, But yet Jesus comes to demonstrate that he is the chief among all prophets. We could say the same thing about David. That David, when you follow the narratives after the death of David, you get into 1 Kings, you have Solomon who reigns in David's place. And if you were to continue reading through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, It's interesting that all of the paragraphs, or sometimes if a king is lucky enough, he'll have half a page in the Bible written about him, but if you spend any time in Kings, you'll know that 
it's this huge survey of all different kinds of kings who lived after David. But what's interesting is that the way that they're defined and described is based on the David standard. So it'll even it'll either say that this king did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his ancestor David, or it will say, basically, this king was nothing like David. This king was evil in the sight of the Lord. So David carries that same kind of uh, standardization that Moses did, except for David, it's in the office of king. So what does David's legacy actually teach us in terms of somebody who's going to come as a later fulfillment? Well, there's a few places we can look, but one of the places which may surprise you is actually in the category of suffering. You might not think that when you're trying to compare kings, that one of the things that you want to look for is suffering. But as it turns out, the life of David and the life of Jesus bear striking similarities. And one of the places we can go to look at that is Psalm 22. Psalm 22, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but Psalm 22 uh, says a few things that are very much worth noting. Verse 1 of Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we could just stop right there at verse 1 and realize that this phrase sounds very, very familiar to any of us who've spent time in the New Testament. In fact, this phrase happens when Jesus is on the cross. That's a really interesting element of David's life. Because when David, who writes this psalm, Psalm 22, writes of his suffering, he introduces it with the same language that Jesus uses. Now, what's really important for us to note is that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many people speculate as to the meaning. Well, Jesus is just showing that he was a skeptic in his last moments. This is, you'll hear this oftentimes in uh, those who are very much critical to biblical truth, and they'll say, well, see, here's an example of how Jesus clearly didn't see his life amount to what he thought it was going to, so he's kind of in this sense of disillusionment, the final moments of his life, and he utters, why have you forsaken me, God? I thought this was going to go different. Well, there's one option. The other option is within um, contemporary Christianity— I wouldn't call it orthodox, but it's a view that in that moment, God actually ceased to be Jesus' Father. And it's a very confusing way that this is described. You'll sometimes hear this in more kind of uh, prosperity theology, um, that Jesus was not ever uh, formally the Son of God until after his death, And so this is a clear case of if he really was the Son of God, he wouldn't be able to say something like this as if God had forsaken him. Again, this is not something that I agree with, uh, but these are kind of attitudes that have been taken with how do we make sense of this phrase. Well, I think knowing that this is an Old Testament quotation, and it's one from David nonetheless, really should be at the forefront of the conversation. How many times have you actually heard people relate this phrase, whatever it means, how many times have you heard people actually relate this phrase back to the Old Testament? Well, 
if that's not even our starting point, then it's very unlikely that we're going to understand the right way that this makes sense within Jesus' uh, own testimony. If we're on, if we aren't even willing to admit that this is very clearly Jesus quoting David's words, then we can really just open up the the realm of speculation after speculation as to what Jesus means, what was happening at that moment. I think the easiest and safest interpretation of when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is this, and again, this isn't the only thing that we should take away from it, but this, is, this should be the primary, is that what Jesus is doing to the crowd there in front of him and to us who read the Bible is he is signaling to us that what is taking place is a fulfillment of what was previously said. And where was it previously said? Well, it was previously said right here in Psalm 22. Now, what that means for us is that the rest of Psalm 22 can give us a very clear kind of survey of Jesus' life. Not necessarily from beginning to end, but at least with the significance of what is happening in that moment. If Jesus, as he's on the cross, wants us to look back to Psalm 22 and quotes it, and no doubt those in the crowd would have known it, they all knew their Old Testament, then what Jesus is saying is, look to Psalm 22 because its fulfillment is happening right before your eyes. Okay, so now that we have that huge preface uh, from yours truly, uh, the rest of Psalm 22 is very noteworthy. We read um, throughout it where there is cries for help. There is David trusting in the Lord. All This verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And you'll remember that at that moment as Jesus is on the cross, the crowd is saying exactly this. They're saying if he really is the Son of God, then come down from the cross or command your Father to rescue you from this cross. You go on to read, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember again, Jesus says, I thirst. Is another element of uh, relationship to that. And then um, verse 16, But dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay? Right there is very explicit fulfillment in Jesus' crucifixion. You'll remember, especially in the Gospel of John, he makes the note that Jesus' bones were not broken. He was already dead. He was pierced in his hands and feet as he was hung on the cross. And John also tells us that the soldiers cast lots to divide his garments. Again, all of this in Psalm 22, way beforehand. And then you follow through to the rest of this psalm. 
Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now that's a direct quotation from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 mentions Jesus as the forerunner of our salvation. He quotes here Psalm 22, verse 22, which we just read. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now Jesus, if he quotes this psalm, no doubt knows the whole psalm, right? He doesn't just know verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also knows verse 24 when it says that the Lord has not despised or abhorred the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now again, that is so, so important, because what we're told here is that Jesus did not have a notion that God had totally abandoned him. Instead, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to signal us to the fact that Psalm 22 is being fulfilled. Psalm 22, so far, is the fulfillment of somebody who is suffering, again, this is David at least initially, David speaking of his own experience, but even prophetically speaking to Jesus himself, that it is a psalm of one who is suffering under the power of evildoers, but one who is not convinced that God has forsaken him, but one who trusts fully in the Lord to deliver him. And that, of course, is the attitude that Jesus had. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And then finally, 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Now, all that to say, Psalm 22 doesn't end on a note of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it actually ends in all peoples from all nations worshiping the Lord and testifying to the fact that He has done it. Verse 31. What is this that He has done? Well, in the immediate context, is that the Lord has delivered the one who cries out to Him in Psalm 22. So He's delivered Jesus from death. But in Jesus' deliverance from death, Jesus, no longer being dead, but living forever and ever, is going to be in whatever place that he resurrects to forever. In other words, Psalm 22 is hinting at the fact that if this one is going to be delivered from death itself, then that means that whatever authority he has, whatever position and title that he has, is one that's going to last forever. Now that is good news, because Jesus, among all other things, as a prophet and as a priest, is the rightful king. He is the son of David. He is the fulfillment of what God promised to David. Okay? So, let me speak with just kind of a rapid fire here of verses in the Bible that kind of hint at the way that we should expect 
Jesus to rule as king. First one's Isaiah 22, verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. Okay, so this king is one who's going to bear our burdens for us and one that has absolute authority. He shall shut, it shall stay shut. He shall open, it shall stay open. He has absolute authority in his rule and reign. Jumping over to the New Testament. Actually, I'll tell you what, before we go to the New Testament, I should, I should not uh, fail to read Isaiah 9 because this is um, perhaps one of the most important verses that speak to this. Isaiah 9, of course, you know, the, the whole Christmas uh, verses here. For unto us a child is born, is Isaiah 9, 6. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his increase and of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So again, you have this idea that this king who is to come is going to have a kingdom forever and he is the continuation or a better way to say it the fulfillment of the rule and reign of david another place we go to is in the new testament which is a quote from isaiah and here we are in luke chapter 2 verse 11 Here is what it says. This is the angel speaking. It says, For unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is called Christ the Lord. And that whole notion of one coming who is the Savior and Christ the Lord, those categories, those, that, that language, that terminology is calling us back to the fact that a king is going to come, which was again predicted in the book of Isaiah. Another place we could go is John 3, and guess what I'm going to say, John 3, 16. This is a you know, surprise, isn't it? Because that doesn't necessarily sound like a kingly um, verse. But this is certainly speaking to Christ in his rule and reign. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, that doesn't explicitly say anything about Jesus' reign as king, but if we have one who is said to be a king, who's going to be a king forever and ever, who's never going to fail in that position, and that position is never going to be taken away from him because he has overcome death, then it makes sense that he would rule and reign in a kingdom, and therefore he will have citizens of that kingdom. 
And we are included in that as being those who have eternal life. That eternal life is in the Son, in Jesus Christ. And now, let me jump all the way to Revelation. Again, this is just kind of a rapid fire here. But what we're doing is we're analyzing the ingredients of what it means that Jesus is King. We're analyzing all of those together to comprehend kind of a good way that we can appreciate who he is and what he has done. Here is the way that Jesus addresses himself to the church in Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That is his kind of title. And then he moves after the content of that letter to the church in Philadelphia. He says this to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So again, he's pulling together the idea that he has the keys of David. He is the rightful heir. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. And those who conquer, those who are included in his reign, will be in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, in the city of God. And so again, you have this idea of a king who's going to reign, but unlike David who died, unlike all of David's ancestors who died, Jesus the son of David, in that lineage is an exception to the rule. He doesn't die. And even more than that, those who are part of his kingdom also don't die, but will be a part of that kingdom forever. And he will reign in that kingdom forever. So these are, again, these are kind of familiar ways to think about Jesus, but he is always pointing us back to the way that he is the true and full completion of David, the king of Jerusalem. Okay, so when we bring all of those things together, I want to point your attention to one more place that is especially helpful to think of. In the book of Revelation, we see the way that these two elements of Jesus' death and his conquering are brought together in a way that emphasizes the fact that he is king. In Revelation 5, John is seeing a series of visions throughout the book of Revelation, and one of which he sees a scroll. And nobody is found worthy to open the scroll. And John is literally sobbing, to put it lightly because it says he's weeping with a loud voice. He's very much shaken up by this. And basically, this is a testimony of the fact that no one is righteous, no one's worthy to open this scroll in this vision. And one of the heavenly elders says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seals. 
that lion of the tribe of Judah is also, as the text goes on, is also explained as being a lamb who was slain. And in his being slain as a lamb, and in his conquering as a lion, we are told this, mentioning the, the lamb and, and the lion. There's a song that is saying of him, and it says this, Worthy are you, this is speaking to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And we have again, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then finally, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So the grand celebration in heaven is the fact that this Lamb, this Root of David, this Lion of the tribe of Judah, is a king. And what he has done has secured his kingship forever and ever. That's good news for him. But is it good news for us? Well, yes, it's good news for us too, because what he has done is also ransomed these people. Which people? Just the Jews or just the Gentiles? Well, no, people from every tribe and language and people and nation. These people have been made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And how long will they reign on the earth? Well, the answer is that the Lamb has blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And therefore, if we are on the earth with the one who has all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, then that means that we will continue in that place for that same duration, forever and ever. So this is a, a wonderful bit of news. When, when you survey the Old Testament and you see the way that David's life is explained, it's mentioned as, you know, this season of struggle, a little bit of peace, but then more struggle and more animosity, right? David is just, has a tough life. I mean, he, he kills Goliath as just part of the king's company when Saul was the king. And he's given the blessing of being in the presence of the king from that point on. And as he is, David grows in his stature, he grows in, in wisdom, and eventually becomes quite the warrior. And of course, it doesn't take long after that to where Saul becomes very jealous of David. And Saul, of course, has his own problems of uh, disobedience to the Lord. But David basically spends his life from that point on. Once Saul decides he doesn't like David anymore, actually tries to kill him. He pursues him again and again. Things seem like they're okay after Saul dies and David becomes rightfully king. But then he has a son, Absalom, who also tries to kill him. And there's just this conflict after conflict. Of course, David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and that puts a halt to the blessing and prosperity of David and his kingdom. And then David struggles even more, right? I mean, there's just one thing after another. 
Um, actually, that with Bathsheba was before Absalom, just to, just to be precise there. But finally, at the end of David's life, David has a son, Solomon. And Solomon is the rightful heir to the throne. There's a little bit of a shakeup with one of David's other sons who also thinks that he should be the king, but David had already promised the throne to Solomon. And when Solomon continues on after David, who I painted kind of a bleak picture of David's life, but David certainly was one, again, who was the standard of kings. He was, he was good and righteous in the sight of the Lord, a man after God's own heart, because he trusted in the forgiveness and the sovereign grace of God, even in his sin and even in his low points. But Solomon is, at least humanly speaking, seen as the continuation of one to sit on that throne of David. But the problem is, just as we see with the prophets, just as we saw with the priests, the problem is sin. The problem is always sin. And even when Solomon, in all of his glory, in all of his wisdom, in his building of Jerusalem, in his building of the temple, he still falls prey to sin. And you have this long era of civil war and distress in Jerusalem from the death of Solomon all the way to where God's people are finally exiled and banished from the promised land. They're taken as slaves. But with all of that season, there is still this hope and still this promise that one is going to come as the true and right continuation of the King David. The difference, however, is that the expectation and the grand fulfillment is that this king, unlike all the others, is not going to sin, and this king, unlike all others, is not going to die. Now, of course, we see that in Jesus. Jesus lives a perfect life. Jesus dies on the cross to secure a people for his own possession, who will also not be subjected to the wages of sin. And Jesus defeats death itself. He he is raised from the dead and lives forever. And he promises that these people, even though they die, will live again. We have a hope of a resurrection. And what we see in the Scriptures is that Jesus is our hope, not only as a prophet, not only as a priest, but as a king. He, de- he declares to his disciples after he is risen from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the basis of the Great Commission. That's the basis of our making disciples, peoples from all nations, because as we see ultimately in the Scriptures, We are operating off of the hope and trust that Jesus is a king that has all authority on heaven and earth. And since he does, we go along with our ministry, with our evangelism, with with our promotion of the gospel to declare who this Jesus is. And as we make disciples, we make them of all nations. And as those disciples are gathered into the kingdom of God, as they become citizens of heaven, as the Apostle Paul says, that these people will rule and reign with their king forever and ever. And that's precisely what we see in Revelation. These people that the Lamb 
and the lion have ransomed for God will reign with him forever and ever as he is king forever and ever. Well, friends, that wraps things up for this episode. We have one more to go in our study of the gospel according to the Old Testament. We will look at how things come full circle, but not back to how they were, but actually forward to an even greater garden than the initial garden of Eden. But that'll be next time in our study of the gospel according to the Old Testament on Teaching Thursdays with the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Look forward to another episode with you. Please feel free to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're into the video version of this. But either way, your subscription and your comments, your reviews, really help make this more accessible and searchable. Of course, there's a huge sea of podcasts and videos and whatnot. So if you subscribe or if you like a video or if you share a link, what you're doing is you're helping me get the word out to other people. I only want you to do that if you believe in what I'm doing, if you appreciate and have been helped by the show. But if you're still listening at this point, then I'm assuming that you have, at least in small measure, been helped. So please consider doing that. And I would greatly appreciate it. But of course, your listening support is what I appreciate the most. So I hope you have a great rest of your day. I hope you're encouraged with how Jesus is this greater and grand king to which we look forward to. And I'll see you on another episode real soon. Take care.